It is a blessing to be back and to kind of get back on task a little bit this week. Uh, last week, we, if you weren't here and, and uh, didn't worship with us, you may not know, we kind of scrapped what our plans were in the wake of the Gilroy and uh, El Paso and Dayton, Ohio shootings and just spent a week grieving together and lamenting together. And I know I was blessed by that. I was touched by that. I pray that those of you who were here we're also, I think we need those times to stop and to grieve from time to time, and I thought that was really, really good last week. <laughs> Not because of anything I said, but just Michael was here and Jay was here and everyone poured out, and uh, I just really, really appreciated that time. Uh, this week's message is a message that was going to be preached last week, and it just didn't feel like the right timing last week in the wake of everything, so I'm, I'm grateful to be able to get up here and share a little bit more with you this morning. It's a good day to praise God, isn't it, church? Amen. God is good all the time, right? Let's try that. God is good all the time. and all the time. Amen. We are in part six of our six-week series called Give Yourself Away. Uh, and for, in week one, we talked about giving ourselves away to Jesus. And then we talked about giving ourselves away to our enemies. Then we talked about giving ourselves away to the poor and then the aliens, orphans, and widows among us. Two weeks ago, in week five, we talked about giving ourselves away to the old, and this week we're going to conclude by talking about giving ourselves away to the young. And so if you were not here two weeks ago as we talked about giving ourselves away to the old, or more specifically what the responsibility of the young is in terms of relating to the old among us, something the Bible is far more concerned about within the context of the church rather than in just some generic sense. You know, the text uses language like submit yourselves, like clothe yourselves in humility. It talks about the importance of just being in the presence of those who are older. And the text even gives us something of a blueprint for how a young person can come and challenge or even confront or correct an older person, that they are in all cases to treat an older person like a mother or like a father. They are to treat an older person like family. And so the sum of last week's message was this, that no matter what you say and no matter what you do in relating to someone who is older than you, start with a pure heart. Start with a pure heart. Don't have ulterior motives. Don't invest time and energy uh, into them because of something you're going to get out of it. Don't manipulate. Instead, just humble yourself in their presence and cherish the, the wisdom, and to borrow a biblical term, the splendor of their gray hair. And in all things we do, make sure that we start with a pure heart. And so as we get started this morning, we talk about what the Bible has to say about our relationship to the young. I want to invite you to join me in a word of prayer. If you're visiting with us today, I know we have a handful of visitors. Uh, one of the things I like to do is just uh, ask us to be uncomfortable before God, be reverent before God. And so rather than just sitting, if you want to get on your knees, get on your knees. If you want to lift hands, lift hands. If you want to stand, stand. But let's go to God with just a spirit of reverence and humility before his throne. Let's pray, church. Lord God, we, we are humbled to be in your presence, Father, and we sit here we stand here, we kneel here, we raise hands here before your throne, and we recognize you as the king of this world, Father. We recognize that your kingdom is coming little by little, Father. 
And Lord, I pray that your kingdom would come on earth just as it is in heaven. Father, today as we, we dig into your word and we understand what you've called us to as, as older Christians and how we love and pour into and teach younger Christians, Lord, I pray that you would make your word come alive in this room. I pray that your Holy Spirit would saturate this room. I pray that you would speak through me, that not a single word that comes out of my mouth would be Josh speaking, but these would be things that you want to say to us and in our midst. And Father, I pray that you would uh, open our ears to have ears to hear the words that you are speaking so that we can understand, we can humble ourselves before you, and we can trust you and worship you as king of our lives. Father, you are the Lord of lords. You are the king of kings. We, we praise you for who you are. And today, we honor you with the way that we listen, with the way that we study, with the way that we sing. We pray that you get all of the glory. All of the glory belongs to you. None of this glory is for us. All of this is for you. And we pray all this, church, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> so this morning, we are turning our attention to what the Bible has to say about the young. And again, more specifically, how those who are older can give themselves away to those who are younger, to be in service to those who are younger. And as I, as I discussed briefly last, last time, two weeks ago, often the relationship between the young and the old is at its worst strained and at its best misunderstood, that the, the young struggle to understand the old and oftentimes the old struggle to understand the young. Say amen if you've seen that, church. But we live in a world that in most cases demands that we learn and that we familiarize ourselves with um, and that we live under the authority of those who are older than us. It is usually those who are older who wield the wealth and wield the power and wield the influence within our country or within our corporations or within our culture. And so the young usually are required in some capacity to learn how to operate in an older person's world. That's just how it has always worked, and I suspect that is how it will always work. And for some young people, that's fine. Like, I was one of those young people as a kid. I was an only child. I split time between two households, 50% here, 50% there, which meant that I was never really uh, the kid who could be best friends with anyone I lived in community with. I had lots of friends my age at both places, um, but because I was only there half the time, all of my friends had these other friends that were like full-time friends that they were with 100% of the time, and they were always happy to include me, but they always had closer friends that were always around, and so I was always something of a third wheel in those friendships. And so the vast majority of human interactions for me uh, came with adults. So dead serious, I spent a lot of school lunches walking around the playgrounds talking with the retired yard duties. Like, I was that guy. Not off playing with my friends, I was walking and talking with the yard duties. Um, I would go and volunteer in the office on my lunch at school and, and field the phone calls so that the secretaries and stuff could take their lunches. I would take the kids in who had a fever and like take their temperature. I, th I felt really important. I liked that. Um, I'd get to school early in high school and I'd hang out for an hour before school, before school started in my classroom with my architecture teacher talking about basketball. I was not outside hanging out with my friends. I was that kid 
I didn't belong to a youth group at church. I just, I did the adult thing. That's what was comfortable for me. I did the adult thing. And so living in an, adult, in an adult's world or in an older generation's world was comfortable for me. It came naturally to me. I was, I guess what they call an old soul to some degree. But my experience was the exception. My experience was not the norm. Most kids were not like me in that way. The vast majority of kids and young people found comfort in other kids. They find comfort in other young people. That's where they know how to communicate. That's where they know how to dress and how to speak and what music to listen to. We relate to people our own age. And so most young people learn to live in an older person's world, but that doesn't mean they understand it. That doesn't mean that they know how to make sense of it. It just sort of is. And so if you've ever looked and you've seen that 16-year-old kid who's just sort of sitting there in the corner, who doesn't know how to make eye contact, who doesn't talk, who maybe just sort of slouches in their chair and they like thumb through their phone. Uh, raise your hand if you've ever seen that kid who like doesn't know how to interact with anyone in the world around them. What you're seeing is not a kid who means to be rude or aloof. What you're seeing is a kid who doesn't know how to connect with the world around him. You're seeing a kid who's basically lost in a foreign land. They're an alien in a foreign land. And so I just picture this. Guess what I would look like if suddenly I found myself tomorrow like in Mumbai, India, trying to, to make sense of, of being at like a party or something or trying to socialize with people. Guess what I would do? Like I probably wouldn't talk. I probably wouldn't make great eye contact. And I'd probably find a lot of comfort just sort of sitting in the corner thumbing through my phone because I would be an alien in a foreign land. We live in a world that is full of young people. There, there are young people everywhere, but make no mistake, guys, this is not a young person's world. It is always a world that is run and managed by those who are older. And for many of us who are older, we look at the generations behind us and we sort of scratch our heads, like, man, why don't they work the way that we worked? Like when I was a kid, I, I, I had to work like 16 hours a day and I got up at the crack of dawn to like milk the goats and all the stuff that I had to do. Like, why don't they work? the way that I work, or why don't they save the way that I save? Like my parents taught me 10% goes to tithe and 10% goes to, to the savings account and like 80% was used for like bare necessities of life, nothing more. Why don't they communicate the way that we communicate? Like I knew how to shake hands, I knew how to make eye contact, I knew how to do that stuff. The younger generation, they don't know how to do that. But what do they call that music? Music, that's not, that's noise, like this rap music. How many of you have heard these kinds of things, right? <clears throat> Why don't they eat the way that we ate? Like my mom put that food on the table and I better finish what's on my plate or else my mom didn't do that, thankfully. Or why don't they go to church like we went to church? Like my dad would have killed me if I stayed home from church on Sunday, right? Like how many of you have heard those stories? It was 52 weeks a year unless you had, like, had lost a limb or were struggling to breathe. Maybe, maybe you could stay home. But you know, sometimes we look back and we just struggle to relate. We just struggle to relate to a younger generation. I've had this, this weird experience of late where I'm supposed to be getting older and more out of touch with style and, and trends and slang and music. And I am. Like, I'm at the age where people start to use words and I'm like, what do they mean by that? Like, that word meant something way different when I was their age. What, what did they mean when they said that word? But then I'm married to an educator and, and 
one who kids actually like to talk to a little bit. So sometimes when we're laying in bed at night, just talking about each other's day, Tiffany will like fill me in on slang terms or music or whatever. And I, I, you know, I, I, I guess I would like to think that maybe I'm not as out of touch as some other people my age. I get to hear about it. I get to hear about the current events that matter to middle schoolers, which nothing is cooler as someone in your mid-30s knowing like what's cool to an 11 or 12-year-old. Plus, I have a daughter, so I get to hear all about K-pop and all that cool stuff. But most people lose that perspective as they age. And I, I do too, but I'd like to think maybe just a little less so. You know, the reality is that, that a lack of understanding, or that that lack of understanding that exists between the generations, and that awkwardness that exists from an older person trying to understand or relate to a younger person is not a reason or an excuse to just like not try, to just throw in the towel, to give up. It's not a reason to do those things. In fact, that tension between the generations that exists in the church, I think may tell us even more about how an older person is living their life in Christ than how a younger person is living theirs. You know, two weeks ago, we touched on a number of passages. And I told you then that we were going to be revisiting one of those passages this week. It's 1 Peter 5. You can read along if you'd like to. I'm only going to be here momentarily. But in 1 Peter 5, Peter is addressing those who serve as elders in the church. I'm talking about the formal position of elder in the church. And he tells them that they are to be shepherds of God's flock, that they are to be caretakers of this group of people of the church. And so to do so uh, as people who are eager to serve. And then in verse 5, Peter turns his attention to the younger people. And he reminds them to be in submission to the elders. He says, your job is to submit to their leadership. Your job is to submit to their care. And all of that, uh, all of which fits the thrust of that last message. But something important is written after that. He says this. He says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud and he shows favor to the humble. And I want you to think about this. Who is he talking to when he says that? Now we hear like all of you. Who's he talking to? Like it would be really easy to read this and assume he's talking to all younger people. But I don't think that's what he's saying. He says, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Say one another, church. One another. It's a reciprocal command. It is a mutual command that the young humble themselves before the elders and the elders humble themselves before the young. And what I'm contending is that that command to elders is not limited to only the formal position of elder in the church, but to anyone within the church who is older that the older have a calling on their life to humble themselves before and to serve those who are younger in many of the same ways that culture and upbringing and scripture reinforces the reality that the young should humble themselves before the old. They should, but there's a reciprocal component to this. And it's the Apostle Paul who goes into more detail about what those relationships look like in Titus. And that's where we're going to be this morning. So I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Titus chapter 2 and keep your Bibles there. That's where we're going to spend the majority of our time. But the book of Titus is actually not a book, right? It's a letter. And it's written by the Apostle Paul to this guy named Titus. And it's a letter that by and large was designed or was written to help Titus establish and nurture a church in Crete, 
which is a challenging place to establish a church. In other words, it's a great text for us as Christians to look to when we're asking ourselves how to be the church in a difficult city or in a difficult community. Raise your hand if you live in a city that is difficult for your faith, right? Hello, San Francisco to a T. I think this is a great model for us. And Paul tells Titus in chapter 1 that Crete is a rough place. I love this. Verse 12, Paul says, One of Crete's own prophets has said it. This is chapter 1. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. And I love verse 13. Paul says, This saying is true. He takes no issue with it. This saying is true. Paul agrees with him. He says that Cretans are rebellious. They are full of meaningless talk. They are full of deception. He has nothing nice to say here. And despite all of their meaningless talk, Paul tells Titus that he needs to go in there and he needs to teach what is good. He needs to teach what is right. He needs to teach what is sound. And he says, here is how you do it. This is chapter two. Read along with me. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, to be worthy of respect, to be self-controlled, to be sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. And then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. And similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled, that in everything, set them an example by doing what is good. And in your teaching, show integrity and seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. And you know, depending on where you read this text, you might hear audible gasps on what I just read. If I went on to San Francisco State's campus and preached this in the quad, there would be audible gasps at some of those things. And so oftentimes, as we read this text, like what do we do? Right, we see these details, and these details don't necessarily jive with our, our own personal or cultural values, and then we just sort of camp out there and we, we make a thing of it. We let it fester and we raise all these issues. Like, busy at home? Who are they to tell me to be busy at home? I'm not going to be busy at home. That's something you would hear in our world today. Or subject to their husbands? Like, excuse me? I'm not going to be subject to my husbands. Those are things that, that people in the world would say. We don't hear them as much in church. And I've said it before, and I'm going to say it again, you're going to hear me say this many, many times from here on out, but let's not miss the forest for the trees when we read a text like this. Let's not miss the forest for the trees, because we can argue and we can discuss whether those words should be taken literally until we're all red in the face and worked up and angry, and we'd still miss the point of Paul's words. What is Paul actually saying to Titus? Paul is telling Titus that the key to a healthy, successful, and thriving church in Crete hinges on the kinds of relationships where older men and women invest in, nurture, and develop the younger men and the younger women in their community. He's telling them 
to mentor those who are younger. He says, that is your job. That is your job. Mentor those who are, who are younger. And so to the older women, he says that their job is to teach or to urge the younger women in how to live. And to the older men, he says that their job is to set an example for the younger men. And as you go back and you read all throughout this whole account, there are all these phrases that come up as he's writing, like teach people to be reverent or to be temperate or to be kind or to be sound in faith. But there's one word or phrase that comes up repeatedly. In fact, Paul mentions it three times in this text. And I'm curious if you caught it. He says, teach the older men to be self-controlled. Urge the young women to be self-controlled. And encourage the young men to be, help me out church, self-controlled. In fact, nearly every other word or phrase that is used for each of these people groups, to some degree, I think, fits nicely and neatly under the umbrella that is self-control. That is what he's talking about. The word that Paul uses here is a word that talks about a person's ability to be disciplined, a person's ability to control their sensual desires, a person's ability to live sensibly, and a person's ability to have right thoughts. And so Paul's inference is that those are all attributes that are or should be possessed by the older people, the older believers, and they need to be passed on to the younger believers. That young people need to learn and be taught how to deny their sensual desires, how to think good thoughts, and how to live in godly ways. But those are things that do not happen by osmosis, by simply being in the same room with one another. It takes intentionality, it takes purpose. And yet a lot of churches live and act and behave in such a way that proximity to and not relationship with is the key to spiritual success in the next generation. So what a lot of churches do is kid graduates from high school, kid X, whatever it is, we invite kid X up on the stage, we say a few nice words, we present to him a Bible, we lay hands on him, we pray over him, and then behind our backs, we're secretly got, got our fingers crossed, just hoping that they somehow figure out what it takes to, to succeed as a Christian in our world. That is the church's model lately for raising up a new generation, and we wonder why more than 50% of kids leave their faith as they get older. My question is, what reason have we given them not to? And so the reality is in many of our churches, what we've taught kids is not self-control, but control. What do I mean? I mean that for far too many of our churches, the church has become something of a battleground where those in positions of power and those in positions of influence contend with one another over you know, the kinds of songs that are sung or whether Bible classes happen before service or after service or whether they happen at all. Uh, we, can, we contend over uh, and stress over whether the church should have pews or chairs or projectors or songbooks or at Christmas time, whether we should have Christmas trees or nativity scenes and on and on and on it goes. And so the church often is this place where one person or group tries to establish control over another person or group. And Paul is over here talking about self-control. That is what Paul is concerned about. He says, you guys need to lean into self-control. And he says in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and following, 
He says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. It teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things that you should teach. And so if we're being honest, so many of the things that a lot of people are fighting for in churches have very little to do with God. A lot of those things serve our own purposes. They're similar to the worldly passions that Paul is speaking of because they're serving our own needs. And what we need to be passionate about are not our methods for doing church, not our traditions and our customs. We need to be passionate about exactly what Paul describes to Titus right here. We need to be passionate about hope. We need to be people who are passionate about Jesus. And we need to be people who are passionate about redemption, that he redeemed us from all wickedness. Paul says these, these are the things that you should teach. These are the things that you should be emphasizing. It's about hope and Jesus and redemption. And Jesus rebukes the Pharisees, if you remember this, for making their worship of God about man. He said, you guys are worried about man's customs, man's traditions. And Paul is basically telling Titus to do the same thing for the Cretans. So what are the implications for us as a church? I think they're right here. That as I alluded to a little bit ago, the church is a reflection of the culture that we live in. It's a reflection of the culture we live in, in that it's a place that is led, and it is owned, and it is operated, oftentimes mostly by older Christians and not the younger ones. And in many cases, those older Christians have modeled what the church is, and they've modeled how the church should look, often not purely by biblical principles, but by what is comfortable and what is safe and what is familiar. And it reminds me of this XKCD comic. I don't know if anyone reads XKCD. It's a comic strip that comes out three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. It's usually about science and technology. And it's so nerdy, I don't understand 60% of what the jokes are. But this one I understood. Uh, this is a few years ago around Christmas time. He did a, a, a comic about all of the top 20 most played Christmas songs that all of us enjoy around Christmas, and he looked at what decade they were written and recorded in, and then he put it on a little cartoon graph here. Any, any guesses? Can you read that well enough to see what decades most of those songs come from? 1950s. 1950s, 1940s, right? That's where the, the two most prominent decades of our Christmas music come from. And so right at the bottom, there's this little tagline. It says, Every year, American culture embarks on a massive project to carefully recreate the Christmases of baby boomers' childhoods. And then there's this tagline where you click, and it says a little bit more. It says, a tradition is anything a baby boomer does twice. A tradition is anything a baby boomer does twice. Now, it's a joke, and my point isn't to bash a generation. I don't like when older generations bash younger, and I'm not bashing older generations myself, but my point is that churches are reflections of what is familiar to us. 
And what's familiar has sometimes falsely been equated with what is sound or what is biblical. We sort of make what's familiar to be like this gospel-centered thing. But I'm here to tell you, and I think you know this, that churches from the 1950s would look way different, very foreign to churches of the 1850s. And churches of the 1850s would look super weird to churches of the 1550s and the 1250s and the 850s, that all throughout time, church has changed, and that's normal, and it's not unbiblical. We're not sacrificing gospel values to do that. The model that Paul describes for the church has way less to do with familiar formats that check all the right boxes of orthodoxy and much more to do with meeting people where they are. Look at what he says to the Corinthian church. He says in, in, in 1 Corinthians, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. He says, that's my goal. That's the win. That's what I'm going for. That's a touchdown in football. That's a run scored in baseball. That's a basket in basketball. That is my win, to win as many as, as possible. And so he says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like those under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. And to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became the weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all means possible, I might save some, and I do this all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. And as you reflect on that text, I want you to notice that Paul does not say to the Jews, I became like a Gentile, or to the Gentiles, I became like a Jew. No, he said, I become like them to win them. I made myself a slave to everyone else. I set out to serve the needs of everyone else, not myself, everyone else. And if Paul wanted to win a young person, according to that text, what would he have written? What would he become? Say it with me, church. A young person. That's what Paul would become if he wanted to win young people. Would he like it? Not necessarily. Would he understand their quirks? Probably not. But he'd do it. Why? He'd do it to win as many as possible. That's his goal. That's his objective. And so there's this old saying that goes something like this, that a church is perfectly designed to reach the people they're already reaching. That's true of any church throughout this country. You go into their doors, look at who they're reaching. That church is perfectly designed to reach the people they are already reaching. If a church wants to grow, and a church wants to get younger, which is something I've heard every single church in America state they want to do, then Paul would say, you've got to become a church that is designed not to reach ourselves, but to reach them. You've got to reach them. Become like them so that you may win them. It's not about being cool for cool's sake. It's not about being trendy for trendy's sake. It's about helping young people not to feel like aliens in a foreign land. And I'm here to tell you the gospel is timeless. The gospel doesn't have to feel foreign to anybody. 
But for a lot of young people, I'm speaking as one of them, a youngish person, the, the, the church, the gospel feels foreign. Paul believed that the key to success and the key to health and growth in any church, specifically in Crete, started with the older believers. He said older believers are essential. They're essential, but not to be in control. They're essential to live out and be examples of and to teach self-control. And so I want to try to remember it this way. You can advance the slide here. Read this with me. First, I control me. Then, I teach we. Let's try that one more time. First, I control me. Then, I teach we. The only thing that Paul wants any believer to be in control of is who? Ourselves. It is their sinful desires, it is their mouths, it is their actions, it is their eyes, it is their hearts, it is their gossip, it is their lust. That's what Paul wants the believer to control. And he believes that older men and women are the key to doing that, that older men and women are critical to that, that they are wise enough and they are strong enough to know how to do that very thing. And then he would tell you to teach the young people, teach the community a life of self-control. Not only what that looks like ideally, like it's easier for us to talk about it on an intellectual basis, but what does that look like practically? What does that look like lived out? You know, we see a lot of times, uh, though, it's, it's kind of the reverse of that. We have a lot of people in churches who might not say these words, but I think their actions reflect these values. We have people behaving like this. First I teach me, and then I control we. First I teach me, then I control me. Here's what I mean. That often there are these uh, lots of well-meaning people who love to learn about Jesus, who love to learn their Bibles. They come to church, they soak up everything they can. They want to know everything they can. But then they use all that knowledge and they use all that experience and they use all that wisdom not to go out and make disciples, not to go and make fruit or bear fruit, but to make sure that that paradigm of church that they, they know and love is conserved. That time that they love so much where they get fed and they get nourished in just the right way. So that isn't threatened. That looks the same as it always has. That looks familiar and that looks comfortable. The problem with that approach is that it can never, ever produce the kind of fruit that Jesus commanded his disciples to produce. It can't. It's an approach that puts us on a collision course with obsolescence and with death. And when the church loses track of the goal or the win, the church has lost its way. We have to remember what the objective is, is to win as many as possible. And I think Kodak is a great, great example of what I'm talking about. Raise your hand if you remember the company Kodak. A few people. Did you know that back in 1973, a man named Steve Sasson at this little company called Kodak invented the digital camera. Kodak invented the digital camera. That's that thing that's embedded into the phone right there and in every single one of your pockets and purses in this room, there are digital cameras everywhere. We've all embraced it and Kodak, of all companies, invented it. And yet Kodak went bankrupt in 2013. After 130 years in business, Kodak went bankrupt. Why? 
I think you know why. Because they were comfortable with film. They knew film. And they didn't want to do anything that would cannibalize film. They didn't want to cam cannibalize their current product. And so they lacked the foresight that was necessary to invest in the right product. And it killed them as a company. Now, is film better than digital? Or is digital better than film? No. They each have their strengths, they each have their weaknesses, but the world had moved on from film. It was a digital camera world now, and Kodak missed that opportunity. And so as a, as a youngish person in the church in America, I can draw a lot of parallels between Kodak and the church. Does that mean one era is better than another era? Absolutely not. But the church needs to recognize that the world is moving on from paradigms of church from our past. It is. And Paul's words to us from Titus are words that call us to set aside some of the things that we may be tempted to grab onto and hold onto and control as firmly as we can, and instead to put our focus on how we are living before God. Are we living as self-controlled people? And then are we teaching the next generation, not in our paradigms, but are we teaching them in our purity? Are we showing the young women, men and women how to be godly men and women? Or are we just hoping they do things our way, hoping they embrace the churches of our childhoods? The church has changed a lot just since I was a kid, and I'm sure it's changed even more since many of you were kids. Are we spending our time hoping that the new generations embrace what's familiar to us? The church is just a collection of people who believe in Jesus. Paul is not asking the church to make the assembly just so. He's telling Titus that the key to success is when the older Christians, the older and more mature disciples, show the younger disciples what it actually means to live as a disciple. Now, I love what George Barna had to say. George Barna, if you're not familiar with him, is a researcher. He researches trends in church growth and in faith and all these things. And at the conclusion of one of his studies about what makes churches grow, his words were remarkably similar to Paul's. He said this, he says, Jesus did not die on the cross to fill up church auditoriums. He died so that people might know God personally and be transformed in all dimensions of their life through their ongoing relationship with him. Such a personal reformation can happen in a church of any size. After all, the goal of every church should not be numerical growth, but spiritual health and vitality. And so Paul's pointing Titus to make sure the older Christians are living lives of spiritual health. They're living lives of spiritual vitality. That's what he's concerned about. He says that's what they need to be teaching the young. First, I control me. Then I teach we. And it's entirely possible to know all of this, to know this stuff, and to do nothing with it. That's why James' words are so important, that we cannot merely listen to the word we have to also do what it says. Otherwise, he says it's like you're looking at yourselves in the mirror and forgetting what you look like. So to the older Christians among us, I believe that Paul would call us to be a church who becomes like the young, to win those who are young. I believe he'd call us to be uncomfortable to do that. And I believe he'd call us to win as many young people as we possibly can. And I believe he'd tell us that the key to winning them is mastering self-control in our lives so that we can model it and that we can teach it to them. First, I control me, then I teach we. 
And I think what Paul starts his letter with in Titus is so important, it's so critical, and something we, we may have never noticed, but I think it's powerful to us. Look at how Paul starts his letter to Titus. He says, to Titus, my true son in our common faith. And then you look at how he starts his letter to Timothy. To Timothy, my true son in the faith. And then you look over at the book of Philemon. Uh, Paul is talking to Philemon about Onesimus. He says, it is as none other than Paul, an old man, now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Are you catching the pattern here? The kind of language that Paul is using? Notice how Paul speaks of and how he views those who are younger in their faith around him. They are as sons and as daughters to him. They are people that he has passed his faith onto. He has modeled self-control for, and then he has taught them self-control. To those older among us, do we have the kinds of relationships with the young where we could, we could genuinely call them son or daughter? Ask yourself that question. Could we teach them as a son or daughter? Or would they only see us as distant authority figures, as friends of our parents, or as friends of our grandparents? Could the young among us call us friends? And so I pray for the church. I pray for the church to become so passionate about Jesus and so in love with Jesus that that's what we are known for, that our lifestyle is the kind of lifestyle where others look at us and they go, wow. Wow, look at that person. That person is so on fire for Christ. That person is so transformed by the love of Christ. It is so evident. It is so obvious. You know, when the young can look at the older and say that, then we'll know that we're on to something and the church will grow. We'll have earned the kind of influence that it takes to teach. It starts with us. It starts with our faith. It starts with our walk. It starts with our commitment to self-control. First, I control me. Then I teach we. And so imagine if our real goal was not so that the church would make us comfortable, but that the old could become like the young in order to teach them and to win them for Christ. Imagine if our goal was actually to be uncomfortable. What kind of church would we look like? What would that require from us? What might that require from you? Who could we become? I think the outcome would be a growing, thriving, healthy, intergenerational body of Christ. And I believe that's what it means to go to all nations. You know, some of Jesus' last words were, go into all nations and baptize people and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And a lot of times we think about that geographically, like, oh, I need to go to Spain, or I need to go to Portugal, or I need to go to China. He's just talking about people groups. Like, yeah, all that stuff's important. But sometimes it's as simple as just going to the young. Go to the young and make disciples. Let's show them self-control. Let's live it, and then let's teach them self-control, and let's become an intergenerational group of people. The church is stronger that way. We become like the young to reach the young, to win as many as possible. It has to be our mission. That has to be our mission, and I pray that it will be. Let's, uh, let's end with a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll spend our, our time in song. Father, I uh, thank you for your holy word. I thank you for the times when it, it encourages us and blesses us, and I thank you for the times where it challenges us. And Lord, I pray that you would use 
uh, your word today to help us to be uh, a church, not just here at Lake Merced, but this is a, a prayer for the church all throughout our country as we talk about how we've, we've become a country that's lost our values, our, our belief and our faith in you, Father. Help us, especially as older believers, as older Christians, as older disciples, to not just sit back in our, in our chairs, in our living rooms and talk about why this, this new world is, is so different and so foreign and so secular, but instead to be people who are so uh, surrendered to self-control, Lord, that we go to the depths of this world and we, we teach them how to live lives of self-control. We model that for them. Help us to become like everyone we need to become to reach them. Or those words don't end with the young. It's, it's with ethnic groups, it's with minorities, it's with the, the hurting and the brokenhearted, Father. Let us become like them so that we can win as many of them as possible, Father. There's a world, there's a community outside these doors of hundreds of thousands of people who do not know you, Father. And I pray, not just for everyone in this room, I pray for me personally to be moved to urgency to reach them, Father. Help me to be brokenhearted for those who are lost. Give me eyes to see and ears to hear that, that lostness would not be so normal that I don't care anymore, that I wouldn't become numb to it, Father, but give me an urgency to reach those who do not know the grace and hope and redemption of Jesus. Father, help us to be passionate about those things. Help us to be self-controlled for those things and to teach those to the young among us. Father, we, we love you and glorify your holy name. We're excited to praise you uh, not just in this next song, but in this whole entire next week. Help us to be transformed people, to be the, the best young and the best old, all sold out for you. And Father, I pray that you would, you would bless us abundantly, that you would give us our daily bread. We pray all these things, church, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.